Okay, good morning everyone. Good to see you all. If you've got a Bible, could you go to Luke chapter 11? Luke chapter 11, we're going to get there in just a moment. If you haven't met me, my name is Stuart. I'm the leader of the church here. And what I'm going to be doing today is we're going to be doing the next part in our sermon series, Teach Us to Pray. What we've been looking at um, over the past few weeks here in church since January is um, a response or a question that Jesus' disciples asked him from having observing his life. And basically they went to him and they said, Lord, teach us to pray. What does it mean to pray? And interestingly, if you go through your New Testament, it's the only thing that Jesus explicitly told his disciples how to do it. We could have asked him lots of things. How do you, how do you, how do you pray for the sick? How do you evangelize? How do you perform miracles, Jesus? Because we'd love a kind of a how-to on that. But the only one that Jesus explicitly answered with this question, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. And so we've been going through this um, as a church. So if you've missing them, please catch up. And the the emphasis of our answer thus far has been the Lord's Prayer, which we've been looking through bit by bit, and we're on the final kind of part of that today. Alongside that, we've been doing the prayer course in our small groups, in our life groups, where we've been watching the videos of the prayer course that's come out of the 24-7 prayer movement, and we've been discussing them, talking about them, and then praying in our groups together. And the group I've been a part of, it's been a fantastic time of just talking, sharing, watching the videos, learning, thinking, and then praying for ourselves, for one another, for the church wider. So if you are not in one of our life groups, please get connected into that. I believe this week is part six, and we're looking at contemplation and contemplative prayer. So that's the next part of that. If you've missed any of the prayer course, you can just go online and watch it. It's all there for free. Um, just type in the prayer course and it'll get you to it so you can catch up on all that. So back to our sermon series. So the disciples asked Jesus, teach us to pray. Jesus responded with the Lord's Prayer, which has become the most well-known prayer, I guess, in the world, prayed by millions of believers now and down through um, the centuries. It is a pattern for us to pray. It covers all areas of life we've seen. We've seen it's also a family prayer. It's our and us. It's not me and I. So it's very much about us as the family and the people of God. And we pray about all sorts of things. We recognize who God is, that he's first foremost. We start with Father. He's the one we come to, a Father who loves us and is for us, so we can come with boldness and confidence into his presence. Then we pray for him, because it's all about him. We ask for his name to be hallowed and his kingdom to come. And then we look at things for us, our daily needs, and we looked at forgiveness last week. What we're going to do today is we're going to look at the final part of the Lord's Prayer today, but we've still got three more weeks of this series to go. And what we're going to look at over the next three weeks is next week, uh, Jeremy is going to be taking us through the parable that comes immediately after the Lord's Prayer in Luke 11. So we're just going to carry on with our passage, looking at that, about persistence in prayer. And then I'm going to look at, last two weeks, I'm going to look at the topic of fasting, because that's often linked with prayer in our Bibles, prayer and fasting. And then finally, the whole area of praying in tongues. So by the end of it, we'll have covered the Lord's Prayer and a few other related topics. What we've also been doing is giving you kind of tips, ideas, things you can try to help you in 
your prayer life. And we've been doing one a week. We've talked about reading books on prayer are great ways to stimulate our prayer life because they encourage us. We've talked about praying with others. We made it a New Year's challenge that whenever you meet with someone from the church that you just spend a moment with praying, whether it's a formal meeting or an informal get-together because you're meeting up for coffee or going for a walk or something, just pray with them. We've also highlighted the best way to do that also is come to our church at prayer where we all pray together and learn from each other about prayer. We've talked about having a place and a plan. If you're going to pray, pray regularly. It's good to have a place where you go and a plan to pray through whatever you're going to pray through when you get there. We've looked about getting informed about the church around the world. So you're praying for our family in the widest possible sense of the worldwide church and everything that's going on there. Last week we talked about writing your prayers down. I found this super helpful. I've been doing this for years and years and years. Writing prayers is just a great way to stay focused and your mind doesn't wander quite so easily. And now we've got number six. Is um, tip for this week is this. Read the prayers of others. Read the prayers of others. I only started doing this back in, I think it was October last year, when I was thinking about this sermon and getting some stuff together and getting prepped and thinking, what are we going to do? And this, I came across in my research this whole idea of reading the prayers of others that have been recorded through the centuries. And the encouragement was they would become fuel to the fire. If you read the prayers of others, it can stir you in your praying. It can help you. And so what I started doing was I got a couple of books and I started reading the prayers of others as part of my daily devotion. So I'd read some of the prayers. And I found some old prayers. And they have been absolutely amazing, reading the prayers of saints who are long dead, but they live on because it's been recorded. And I've got a couple of books to recommend if you would like to try that. The first one is this one. It's called The Valley of Vision. This one's been around for decades. This is a collection of Puritan prayers dating back hundreds of years. And what I was using them for in my daily devotion, I just read one a day, and there's just one a page. And there's a whole bunch of topics you can get into, uh, and they're, they're, they're grouped by topics so you can pick and choose. I was literally just going through them one at a time. And I found them fascinating and really stirring that launched me into my own worship, my own prayer, the things they prayed for. The, the health warning for this is that the language in here is it can be a little bit old. There's a few thys and thous and these in there, but you can translate them in your head to the yours or whatever it is. And so I would sit there and I'd read them aloud, and then through them I would then go on to pray and worship myself. And so that is an excellent one, the Valley of Vision. Uh, The next one is um, called Piercing Heaven, which is also a bunch of Puritan prayers, but this one's in a lot more down-to-earth English. So there's no these or thys in these. So this one's a little bit more straightforward. So this one I've also used, done a bunch of these. These are excellent as well, and I thought I would prefer these, but guess what? I actually prefer the Valley of Vision ones, but they're both useful, so you can try them all, see which one you fancy. I actually prefer old school, it seems. I am clearly old school in my thinking. So there's a couple to try. And the last one is a right up-to-date one. This is called Pocket Prayers by Max Licardo. If you've ever read Max Licardo, he's great because he loves Jesus and he likes talking about Jesus. And so these are just a bunch of short prayers you can try. Daily prayers, there's 40 in here um, to um, start your day, end your day, give you some fuel for the fire. And these are all to give away. So if you want a copy of the Valley of Vision, I've got two there. Come and grab it. I've got a copy of Piercing of Heaven. Come and grab that and one of Pocket Prayers there. So grab them. There's two. There's one. Come on, there's one here. Piercing Heaven. Who wants this one? No one wants it. No, I said I prefer the other one. I'm using that. I read that this morning. Good stuff. Have a go. Okay, let's get on to our topic for that. Is this still working? Yes. Let's read our passage. Luke 11, please. 
Okay, this is what we've been looking at. It says this, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. All right, we've been going through this structured prayer that Jesus gave his followers. We've seen that each line of the prayer is really a gateway to prayer. It's not something we learn by rote per se and just reel off and then we're done. Each line of the prayer, each part of the prayer is something that we then use to pray into. And after the Father at the beginning, there are five petitions. And we've seen that petitions are us... us, um, making requests, but they are forceful requests. We're making almost commands of God, saying, God, we want you to do this. And we are to come boldly and forcefully before our Father in heaven and make these requests, which can sound a little bit presumptuous, but it's okay because the person who taught us to pray was Jesus, who is God, and he says, I want you to approach the Father in heaven like this. So that's what we're doing now. And We've seen these prayers. The first two, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, are about God, his glory, his kingdom. Then the following three are very much about us. The first one, they give us our daily bread, is about our kind of physical needs that we need to pray into. And then we've got two about our spiritual needs. The first one was forgiveness, which we looked at last week, and we saw that we need to be given. That's our fundamental need before God is to be forgiven. But in turn, us receiving forgiveness from God and that revelation in our life and that understanding of what that actually means then in turn causes us to what? Forgive others. If you are a Christian and you have been forgiven much, we saw in the parable of the unmerciful servant, that you will forgive others. It's a natural throw. Not to earn God's forgiveness, not to earn his, um, his love or anything, but actually as a response of what he's done in our lives. And so we are to be forgiving people. And then finally today, we have the fifth petition, which is about our protection, about our protection. And it simply says, lead us not into temptation. So we've looked at daily provision, daily pardon, and now it's daily protection. We've prayed for our food, our forgiveness, and now we're going to pray for our frailties. A little bit of background to this verse, and that's simply this. We have an enemy. We have an enemy who hates you, who hates us, who hates the church and wants to destroy it. He's referred to as Satan, the devil, the evil one. He is a fallen angelic being who is opposed to God, opposed to his people and opposed to his purposes. He is our enemy. He first appears in our Bible right back in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 3 where we see him come and tempt Adam and Eve. And throughout Scripture, we see him as one who lies, steals, kills, and destroys. He is utterly evil. All his intentions are evil. And he is opposed to God in every possible way. And we as Christians find ourselves in the midst of a cosmic battle. We looked at this. We covered this when we talked about your kingdom come. We have an enemy and his kingdom who is opposed to God and his kingdom and this world that we live out is 
the battleground where they clash day after day, week after week, year after year. Now we know, and the good news is, that our enemy is defeated because of Jesus' death and resurrection. And he is ultimately destined for eternal punishment in hell. God's kingdom is here, it has come, it is growing, becoming fuller and fuller every day till one day when Jesus returns, it will come in its fullness and we will live in the good of that. But in the meantime, we live in a time when God's kingdom is advancing, but we have an active, vindictive enemy who is after us. And this enemy tempts us to sin. He tempts, which means he entices us to do wrong, and he tempts us to sin, which is to um, do the things that offend God. We covered that last week, particularly in the forgiveness part of the prayer. And so two things to highlight before we get into this position that I want us to be aware of before we move forward. Number one is that our enemy is strong. Our enemy is strong. There are two mistakes you can make about the devil. The first one is to exaggerate him, so he's some all-consuming uh, entity that can just you have no hope against. The other is to minimize him and make him an object of fun in a little red suit with a pitchfork and has no meaning or bearing on life. Neither of those are helpful. We need to be, as Peter says in 1 Peter 5, we need to be sober-minded about him, have a level opinion of who he is, and that is he is strong. Peter says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, adversary, sorry, the enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. The picture there is of a lion on the hunt for prey, on the hunt for food. This enemy hates you, he wants to destroy you. He wants to destroy everything in your life related to God and God's goodness. He wants to see you opposed to God and far away from God and ultimately destined to the same place he is. That's what he wants. And he is an enemy of us. And he is persistent, which means he is unceasing in his opposition to God and therefore unceasing in his opposition towards God's people, the church. And so he is persistent. He will not give up. He will not take a break, a time out, have a paid holiday. He will always be there opposing God's people. He is creative. He's always finding new ways to attack God's people, to undermine God's people, to cause God's people to doubt God, his goodness, his grace, and his love. If we look in Luke chapter 4, when the devil came to tempt Jesus, he did it three different ways. He didn't just do one. He thought, well, I'll try a different way. I'm not just one, Jesus resist him and give up. Nope, I'll try something different. Second time didn't work, so what do we do? Try the third time. He keeps coming back and he keeps trying new ways to undermine God's people. He is deceptive. Jesus said he is the liar and father of lies. He will do everything he can to throw you off. He will tell you what you need to hear or what you want to hear. He will tell you to turn good things into God things. The good things God gives us, like food and money and homes and clothes and sex and relationships, he will try and tell you that they, are, they should be elevated, be worshipped instead of God. He will lie and deceive you. He is subtle. He might not come at you directly, but he will start just by undermining things, finding a chink in your armor, finding something that you're not paying attention to and use it to undermine you to lead you away from God the next thing we need to remember is that our enemy is strong and the next thing is that we are weak we are weak 
Paul writes to the church in Corinth. He's writing about the failure of Israel in the wilderness. Now, Israel in the wilderness were the people of God who'd been led out of slavery in Egypt. And if you think about that generation, those people, they saw some of the most epic miracles of God recorded in our Bibles. If there's any part of the Bible where you want to see the power of God displayed, that's a pretty good place to go because they, they witnessed the ten plagues of Egypt. They witnessed the parting of the Red Sea. They witnessed the presence of God come in fire, visible fire and noise on Mount Sinai. The giving of the law through Moses, they saw it all. They had the highlights of the Old Testament. They were like, we were there. But we know they failed. And Paul writes to the church in Corinth. Now these things happen to them as an example, but they're written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, anyone who thinks that he stands, take heed, lest he fall. Pride comes before a fall, is what he's saying. We think we're wise, we think we're strong, we don't think we can be tricked. That is rubbish. We are just as susceptible as anybody else who's ever lived. Jeremiah 17 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So even our own heart is deceitful. Even the way we think and act towards things can lead us astray. The Bible effectively is a story of human weakness. Adam and Eve messed up. You go forward, you find Abraham, the great father of faith. He's lying about who his wife is. So he gives them to someone else to sleep with so they don't kill him. We find his grandson Jacob favoring one son over another and leading to all sorts of problems which led them down to Egypt. We find Moses, the prophet, the bringer of the law, who's a murderer and ultimately didn't see the promised land because of his unbelief. David, greatest king in Israel's history. Liar, murderer, adulterer. Even the apostles, we go into the New Testament. Peter, he walked on water. He saw the resurrected Christ. Yet he also cut some guy's ear off with Jesus. He tried to divert Jesus and ended up getting called Satan by Jesus and then ended up denying Christ himself. And even the apostle Paul, another murderer that God transformed by his grace. We are vulnerable to our enemy who attacks us and we fail so often. We fail when we're scared, when we're idle, when we're exhausted, when we're overconfident. And in all these, we are susceptible to sin being pulled away. And it's not just external pressures that come to us. Things from the outside come in. It says in James 1, uh, James, the brother of Jesus, very astute. He says, but each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. So it doesn't just come from the outside, it comes from the inside. And I don't know what you've been told over the years in church about dealing with sin, dealing with temptation. It could have been tell others, have accountability. If you're being tempted in an area, you speak to others. It could be avoiding situations. If that's the area where you know you mess up, don't go near there. Quote scripture in the face of temptation, which helps you, defend you. Well, what I want to suggest today is those things are good, but Jesus gives us one really practical thing to do in the face of temptation, and that is to pray. To pray. And when I was preparing this, I need to confess to you that as I went through the Lord's Prayer and I've got to this last petition and we've been preaching through it and studying it, I suddenly realized this is the petition I pray least. If, you give yourself, if I gave myself an inventory. Father, 
Well, that kind of works nearly every time I pray, Father in heaven. Okay, I got that. Praying for God's kingdom to come, praying for his name to be hallowed. Yeah, I've done that. Praying for God's provision. Oh, I do that a lot. Yeah, I've nailed that one. God, I need this, I need this, I need this. Then you're praying for forgiveness. Yeah, I recognize I need forgiveness. Forgiving others, eh, I can work on that. But then when it came to leading me not into temptation, I suddenly thought, oh, crumbs. I can do all the other things. I forget sometimes, many times, often to pray. So let's have a little look at this. I don't know if you're the same as me or you're superior and self-righteous and better than me. <laughs> but I fail in that one. So let's look at this petition. Lead us not into temptation. First question is, is God the one who tempts us? Is God the one who tempts us? Because that could be the implication of the prayer. We're saying, God, don't lead me into temptation. Can I give you a straight, simple answer? No. That is not what it's saying. James 1.13 says, Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So that's not what this prayer means. In Matthew 4, we see Jesus who's in the wilderness, um, within the spirit, and it says he was tempted by the devil, not by God. So what it's not saying is that God is the one who leads us into temptation. So what does it mean? Well, we need to look at two things to kind of help us get our minds around it. The first one is trials and tests, and the second one is temptations. Trials and tests, in in our Bible we can find both words, sometimes in the same sentence, same verse, and then temptations. Let's look at trials and tests first. James 1, 2-4 says this. Count it all joy, underline that word, joy, my brothers, When you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing, there's the other word, of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Let's read that again. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Here's the truth. God in his sovereignty allows things to happen in our lives. Things come into our life and God allows them in his overall plan, mercy, grace and love to work themselves out. It's part of living in a fallen world. And these trials and tests and difficulties we go through can be in all areas. It can be in the areas of our work. Anyone here felt pressure or a test or a trial in their workplace? Yeah. The ones who didn't put their hand up should have put their hands up, but you know what I mean. What about in relationships, in friendships, or even in marriage? There can be testing times. Husbands and wives don't look at each other at this point. Just acknowledge the universal truth. Any of you have responsibility for little people? There can be trying and tests that come from raising children. It can come from other life circumstances. It can come from outright persecution, which many of our brothers and sisters around the world face directly. Persecution. It's all part of living in a fallen world. And you need to ask yourself a very simple question. Have you ever been through difficult times? Are you going through difficult times right now? Well, the Bible says that these things happen, but they are ultimately for our good. They're ultimately for our good. Like the refining of gold, which is heated, and then the the dross is then skimmed off the top. That makes the gold purer. 
better, more worthy. And the same with us. When we go through trials and tests, it grows us in godly character. It enables us to become more like Jesus. It teaches us to trust God more. It teaches us more about who he is and what he's like. If you've ever been through a trial and a test and you feel like you've come out the other side and you reflect back, there's testimony after testimony. I've seen it in my own life where you reflect back and see God was with me throughout that. And through this, I've learned. It's funny, actually, even since we started this series, Teach Us to Pray, have you found difficulties come in your life and you found yourself more likely to pray? That's probably God's way of saying, well, you did ask. You did say, well, teach me to pray. Well, if I'm going to teach you to pray, how about I give you something that you need to pray about and therefore you'll grow in prayer? On reflection, if you look at your life, I would probably go as far as to say everything that is good in life requires some kind of hard work. Think about your education. Going through school, getting qualifications. Some of you got professional uh, qualifications and able you do the job you're doing. All that kind of thing. They were hard. Studying for exams, getting ready for tests, going for interviews. All those things are hard. But at the end of it, you reap some rewards. You get a job, a job that pays you. I trained for many years to become a teacher. It was horrible at times, but at the end of it, I got my own class, and I was the one in charge doing the work, and they paid me for it. It was amazing, and that's what it's like. What about relationships? It's hard to maintain relationships. Friendships, marriage, you have to put in a lot of hard work, but you reap the good of them. You enjoy friendship. You enjoy a long marriage. Parenting, raising kids can be hard work, but they can also be a wonderful joy to your heart as they grow up and you see them learn. What about being part of church? That can be hard work, can't it? Because there are a bunch of other people here who are are imperfect. Unlike you, they're all imperfect and you have to put up with them week after week. They're all their foibles and their idiosyncrasies. But actually, if you invest and you give time to it, you have the beautiful thing, God's bride, that you are a part of and we can reap the reward. And growing in godliness, growing like Jesus is no different. And so we have trials and tests in our life that God uses in his mercy and grace to grow us. We then have to put this alongside temptations. Now the temptations are from the enemy. And he seeks to turn tests and trials into opportunities to sin. Opportunities to sin. He seeks to cause us harm. He seeks to steal, kill, and destroy and he seeks to attack us. How does he do this? Well, he takes a difficult situation you're facing or pressure you're under, and he seeks to sow seeds of suspicion. What's the, what did he say to Adam and Eve? Did God say? He sought to undermine God. Sought, us to, sought to say, you don't trust God. God isn't good. God doesn't love you. God isn't for you. God doesn't want your best. He wants to undermine that. And he does that to us today. He causes us to doubt who God is, what God has done for us, what God is capable of. He causes us to focus on the negative. We forget all the good things God has done, and we focus on the one thing that we perceive is lacking or he hasn't done. And we forget to count our blessings, which should be a daily practice to remind ourselves of the goodness and faithfulness of God. He causes us to take things into our own hands, 
God isn't working quick enough or doing what I want when I want. Therefore, I will make this happen. I will do it my way. It's exactly what Abraham did. We've mentioned Abraham. God promised him a son. And through that son, the nations of the world will be blessed. You'll have many children, he says. And Abraham was waiting and waiting and waiting. And he got fed up. So he took um, uh, bats into his own hand. His wife wasn't getting pregnant. She was barren. He was old as well. So they said, well, let's sleep with the maidservant. She gets pregnant. It's like, well, we've got a son there. And God was like, that's not what I intended. It was going to be your son by your wife. And eventually God gave it to him. But by taking things into his own hands caused all sorts of problems. So when we pray, lead us not into temptation, we are praying, God, keep us from temptation in the trials and tests we face. Keep us from temptation when we walk around this world. When things come our way, we are tempted to doubt you, doubt your faithfulness, doubt your goodness, doubt your care, doubt your love for us, doubt your hand on our life. Lead us not into temptation. Prevent us, preserve us in that time from going off in our own way, from disobeying your laws, from disobeying your precepts. Everything that says go and do it your own way. From doubting your word that says this is the best way to live. We looked at the Ten Commandments just before Christmas and that was God's best way to live. The best thing that would bring us fulfillment in life. When we seek to break them and we go our own way and do our own thing, that's what the enemy wants us to do. And we're praying here, God, preserve us from that. And we can have great confidence when we pray this petition because of Jesus. Because number one, Jesus prayed this. Jesus himself prayed this prayer. If you go to Luke 22, verse 40 and 46, and he's in the garden with his disciples. And when he was in the garden with the disciples, what was just about to happen? His arrest, his trial, and his execution. And he's with his buddies, his best friends, his people closest to him. And he said to them, when they came to that place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And later he says to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter temptation. So Jesus himself is endorsing this and saying, you do it. I'm doing it. We're praying here in the garden. But they all, we know, fell asleep. And also the good news is the prayer was answered, wasn't it? Jesus didn't fall into temptation. And he went through with the Father's plan. The second thing is Jesus knows all about temptation. Hebrews 4.15 says, We don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. Whatever you're facing, whatever temptation is in your life, whatever has been put in front of you by the enemy to say, take this, do this, act like this, which you know is not in accordance with God's will or God's law, Jesus has faced it. He has faced it because he lived as a man. He was fully God, but he was also fully man when he walked the earth, which means he faced everything. Greed and pride and anger and malice and lust. All those things that would come out from us that we want to kind of indulge. Jesus has been through all of that. He knows what it likes. So when we come to him and pray, say, God, this is what I'm facing, we have a high priest who says, I know what that's like. I've been there. I can sympathize with you. And the final thing is that Jesus has given us a way out. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation, underline no, no temptation has overtaken you that is not uncommon to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. 
but with the temptation he will always provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. There is always a way out. God has provided that through Jesus' death and resurrection. There is an always a way out. Whatever you're facing, whatever it is, there is always a way. God has in his mercy has done that. So whatever trial we face, whatever tests we face, there is always a way to avoid temptation. The reality is we often fail to take it, which is why we need the previous petition of forgiveness, but we are also to pray that in those times we would be led away, that we would resist, we would be preserved, we would be prevented from going into temptation. Let's apply this. A few things and then we'll finish and we'll spend some time worshipping. Number one, remember that we are in a battle. We are in a battle. One um, author I read writes this. He simply says, life is war. And that would probably be a useful thing for us to write down and stick somewhere so we see it on a daily basis. Life is war. Not that long ago, there was the world was engulfed in a war, a world war, the Second World War, and there are still people alive today who remember it. Not many, but there are. And so it's kind of right there in history. And if we reflect back on that time, you would have seen TV series or documentaries or films that cover that period of history. And if you reflect on what the men and women were like in wartime compared to what we're now like in peacetime, we are poles apart. Here in the West... In the 21st century, we live in a level of comfort that is unknown in human history. What we have available to us, the level of entertainment that we can access, the level of provision for food uh, and the like, and just the peace and prosperity. And now you might say it's not perfect. It's way better than our forefathers had by like a million miles. We have so much good in our life. And this can lull us into sort of just this world of comfort. It's all about my comfort. It's all about making my life easy. But if we reflect back to wartime, what did they live like? Well, they lived always focused on the grand objective, which was to defeat the enemy. In Europe, it was the, the Nazi kind of forces coming. And at one point, everything was pushed back to this little island we're on. But everyone was focused on, we have to defeat the enemy. Giving up is not an option. What did Churchill say? We will fight them on the beaches and on the landing grounds, and we will never surrender, even if it means us being completely overwhelmed. And that was the mentality they had. They had to fight. Everything was put into the war effort. To, there was rationing, and there was building, and people conscripted to work in the factories to build weapons to fight the enemy. And that was the mentality of the nation because the threat they were under was huge. And you couldn't go anywhere and avoid it. And we live in a war like that. We are facing an enemy who is cunning, who is strong. We know he's defeated, but actually he's still there. He's still active, and we can see his fingerprints everywhere. You just have to look at the news and see evidence of it. And we need to live in a mentality that that is the world we live in. We are in a battle. It is literally life and death. Eternal life and death. Paul, in his writings, talks about the armor of God that we are to wear as followers in Ephesians 6. And the image there is totally militaristic. It's actually, you're, you're a soldier in a battle, and you wouldn't go into battle without your armor on. 
And he's got a weapon as well to fight, which is the word of God. He makes it very clear we're not to fight with earthly weapons, guns and knives and bombs and planes and smart drones and all this, but we are still to fight and we are to have weapons. The world that we live in is not all there is. There is an unseen realm right here with us where there is a battle raging for the hearts and minds and souls of men and women. And the consequences of failure are huge. And we need to take that seriously. And as Christians here, as believers, we have been saved. We have been raised up with Christ. We are now holy and righteous. But what that means, you've now been conscripted into an army. And you are to be on the front foot. Who remembers the old song? Onward, Christian soldiers. It's not the only image used in Scripture, but it's there. And we need to take that seriously. And that's what we're to do. And we don't fight by cursing our enemy and beating people up. We, we, we have weapons of the word of God that we proclaim truth. We show compassion and love and grace and mercy to those. We feed the poor. We pray for the sick. We do all those things. But it's still we're active on the front foot. If you are not a believer here today, you are still in a war, but you're on the other side. And I have bad news for you. You're going to lose. Not because we're smart or brave, but because Jesus has won. And I want to offer you today the opportunity to come join the right side, to follow King Jesus, to repent of your sin, to turn away from the way you've been living and follow him all the days of your life. And so I'd love to talk to you about that at the end. Second thing, remember our enemy has been defeated. He has been defeated. We have to remember that we're in a battle and there's a fight and the enemy and his forces are there, active, but ultimately he has been defeated, which is what we sang about earlier. We sang about Jesus' victory and Jesus has won the victory. He is winning the victory now and one day it will be completed in its fullness and we get to live and enjoy and celebrate that. The, the way that the, um, the kind of scholars, theologians describe it is... Um, like the D-Day landings. In the Second World War, uh, 6th of June, 1944, the Allied forces landed in northern Europe and created a, a bridgehead on the beach. And most historians would tell you that at that point, the war was over in effect because the Allies had landed in Europe and it was just basically a march to the finish in Berlin. But there were still many battles to fight and we live like that. D-Day's happened. It happened on the cross and the resurrection. The victory's won. We're merely in a mopping-up operation. And we are to celebrate that, to walk in the light of that, to proclaim that to a dying world. There is a king on a throne, and he's won. And we're just waiting for the end by serving him and proclaiming him and doing everything he's asked us to do. And one day the gospel will be preached in all the world to all peoples, and then he's coming back. And then every eye will see him, and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord. And that's what we are to live in the light of and proclaim. And we can find forgiveness in him and him alone. The final thing is we are to remember to pray this prayer. Daily. It's a daily prayer. It says, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those. And lead us not into temptation. So daily we should be praying for God's protection on us, God's preservation on us. God to give us grace to stand up under temptation, to stand up under the onslaughts of the enemy. And the reality is now, many of you, us, are facing this. 
even as we've been talking, you are aware of things in your life where you are under pressure, where you are being tempted to sin. You're in a situation that's difficult, whatever that might be, but in that pressure cooker of life, you are tempted to sin. You are tempted to go your own way and go, not go God's way. It could be something in your workplace, some business practices or something that's happening there, how you speak about your boss or your colleagues, how you conduct yourself there and you're thinking, I'm, I'm acting a certain way that I shouldn't be. It can be in relationships, in friends, in your marriage where you're acting a certain way or you're going down a certain path that would lead you away from what God would have you do and you need to stop now. And so we need to be people who pray this prayer. We need to pray it for ourselves. And because it's a family prayer, we need to pray it for others. We need to pray it for our friends, our, our family, our church, all that are in it, us as leaders of the church as well. Pray for us that we would not be led into temptation. And we're to recognize that although Jesus has the victory, there is an enemy who will do everything he can to spoil that in our lives. And we will live with the consequences of that. So what I'd love to do now, if you just want to stand, we're going to finish and we're just going to take a moment to pray and bring this to Jesus. Maybe you just want to close your eyes. Let's start with this. The, the previous petition was um, about forgiveness. And actually, if you know there are things you need to get right before God now since last week, maybe take a moment now to do that. Bring that before God. Ask his forgiveness. Recognize that his mercy and grace is available to us all. And just get right with him. And then for many of us, probably all of us in some point, we're facing pressures and trials. We're, we're under pressure in life, whether it's work or finances or relationships or parenting or school, whatever it is, we're under that pressure. And I just want us as a moment now to cry out to God to protect us and preserve us in that time, to recognize that we have an enemy who would seek to destroy us, not forgetting his great victory that we celebrate in and we're going to sing about, but actually also to recognize. So if I lead us, maybe you pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have won the victory. Thank you that that is not in doubt. Thank you that your name is being hallowed around this world and your kingdom is coming. Thank you one day it will come in its fullness and we will live in the good of that. Thank you that your kingdom is advancing all over this world. That men and women are responding to you and putting their faith and trust in you. Lord, thank you for the privilege now of being one of those people. Not dependent on what we've done, but solely dependent on your grace and your mercy. We thank you, Lord, for that, Lord. But we see and we recognize there is an enemy 
who is active and would seek to destroy and thwart your plans and purposes. And we recognize the pressure in our own lives. And Lord, we pray as your people now, God, lead us not into temptation. Lord, we pray you would preserve us and protect us in times of trial and testing. Lord, we pray you give us grace to say no. We thank you that there will always, always be a way out because you've provided that for us, Lord Jesus. And I pray, God, you would give us grace to take it. Whatever your situation is you're facing, if you know a sort of a pressure one where you're being tempted, I'll just give you a minute now. Bring it to God. Speak to him about it and pray for yourself. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you that you are the victorious King. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you rule and reign over all things. Lord Jesus, we thank you even when we fail, you have offered us forgiveness, that we stand holy and righteous before you. Lord Jesus, we pray as your people here, your church, that you would preserve us, protect us, give us grace to walk in your ways, to seek holiness, to pursue a righteous way of life. Lord, we pray you lead us not into temptation, Lord Jesus. We want to pray. We want to say we love you and we praise you. And God's people said.